Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 11, verses 1 through 57. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you are going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? 
But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You are not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another, as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. So this past Wednesday, I went to visit my grandma who's living in an assisted living home. And I spent about an hour or so with her just holding her hands, telling stories from life with her and grandpa who's now been gone for four years and giving updates on each of her great-grandchildren. I got a chance to pray with her, gave her a kiss, walked out the door and weeped like a baby in my car. I think one of the hardest things about having like a front row seat to watching somebody decline in health is that you remember so well, like when they were vibrant and, and lively, and the person that's before you is just a, a shadow of what you remember. And I hate to admit it, but it probably won't be too long until there's a long receiving line and a casket just over my shoulder. And as I cried in my car, the phrase that kept going through my mind is, I just, I hate death. And honestly, if I could avoid that funeral, in fact, if I could avoid going to any funeral 
ever. And I don't think I'm alone in saying this. Like, if I could avoid going to any funeral ever, I would totally take it. And some of you may be laughing. You're like, gosh, uh, Cody, you, you pick kind of an interesting profession, you know, if you want to avoid funerals. Like, uh, I get that. And I love being a shepherd. I love the importance of just like being there in key moments for people. But one of the sad realities, one of the harsh realities about just being like a young pastor, then not only that, like being a, a younger pastor who works predominantly in a church that reaches a lot of young people, is that to this point, a vast majority of my experiences with funerals have been absolute tragedies. I've only ever done two funerals for people of just like natural causes, you know, age, things like that. I've buried babies. I've buried teenagers. I've buried college students. In fact, uh, I was driving through Ottumwa this past week and it reminded me of probably what is like the most sobering picture I have in my possession is this picture that I pulled off my phone. A site I never wanted to see, but to see the Salt Company logo on the gravestone of a Salt Company student. I hate death. If I could avoid going to another funeral, I would totally do it. And I think the questions that we need to address as we walk out this life as Christians, one of the most foundational ones is just like, how do we engage death? And especially when we're talking about like tragedies, like things like that, like the, the gravestone, the unexpected things. They cause you to, to look at something and go, God, where were you at that moment? <laughs> Did you not know what was going on? When we cried out to you and we prayed while he was in a coma, did you not care enough to, to change the outcome? All questions that are very natural in those times. And church, if you're looking for answers and you're ever asking questions like that, I'm telling you, I believe John 11 is the best passage in all of the scriptures to answer every one of those questions. And that's where we are today. And so for years now, this has been like the passage I've kept in my back pocket every time I've walked into a funeral and every time I've had to stare death in the face, I've ran to John 11. And so for some of you, this may be hitting you in stride. Maybe your week was like my week and you had a Wednesday like I had, or maybe it's not and you just need to store this away for a rainy day, whatever, John 11 will be incredibly helpful for us. So if you have a Bible, open to John 11. Uh, most often when we read this text or this text is taught, all, what often gets highlighted is the power of God on display through Christ Jesus. And I don't wanna miss that. We will look at that today, but I don't also want to miss the priorities of God and the personality of God on display through Christ Jesus. And so we'll try to hit those things as well. But let's pick up here in verse one. I wanna just read the first seven verses together. It says this. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, 
her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Jerusalem again. So Lazarus, Jesus' Jesus's friend, a, a friend that Jesus loves, like it, it makes that abundantly clear, is sick. And I can't even like avoid this next statement because it's abundantly clear. Jesus' friend is sick and Jesus lets him die. Jesus lets him die. Now we know like, like Jesus didn't even actually have to like physically go to him to, to heal him. We saw back in John 4 when Jesus healed the official son, like he's got range. Like he can hit it from, from downtown all day long. Like he, he can heal from a distance. But he doesn't do that here. In fact, like even, even more, it, it's not just that he doesn't heal him. He actually waits while they are weeping. Now, if you're a skeptic of Jesus, I, I can understand if right now you begin to ask the questions like, okay, so what kind of God is this? Like, this doesn't seem very loving at all. Yet I want to make this abundantly clear from the onset of this message, because I would argue that it is not Jesus's terrible hatred of them that is causing this situation to unfold. It is his immense love for them that he is allowing them to walk through this. Connect verses five and six. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. He loved them so when he heard, he stayed. He loved them, so he stayed. Just connecting those two verses, it becomes immediately and abundantly clear there is a bigger purpose at play when it comes to this tragedy. Go back to verse four. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God that the son of God may be glorified through it. And immediately we're confronted with God's priorities, which may be different than our own. I was interacting with a friend not too long ago and he made this statement. It was like a statement slash question. You know how those go? But he, he made the statement, doesn't God want me to be happy more than anything else? To that I responded, no, actually. God doesn't want you to be happy more than anything else. Let's just unpack that for a little bit. He wants you to be happy, but often when people are talking about happiness, they're talking about like momentary, like this temporary happiness. And God cares way more about your eternal happiness than he does your momentary happiness. So that's a greater priority. But because he cares about your eternal happiness, he cares also about his glory, that his name and fame would spread throughout the entire earth. And that matters more than your temporary happiness. Also your holiness matters more than your temporary happiness. Like these, like, so if I'm ranking it out, like, and you say, doesn't God want me to be happy more than anything else? No, it's, it's important, but it just doesn't hit the top of the list. I can list a few things that are above it. God cares more about these things. And because of that, it means that not everything that he does will necessarily jive with our momentary happiness. 
there will be things that God does in pursuit of those greater priorities that sometimes put your momentary happiness on a back burner for just a bit. Might allow Mary and Martha to go through a painful stretch, but it's all part of a larger story, a bigger and greater working. There is purpose, we must know this as God's people, like there is purpose in everything that God does, including purpose in the waiting. When it seems like God is MIA, there's purpose in that too. One of the passages that I always encourage people to cling to, like when you're walking through a tragedy, you're like, I just, but I don't feel like God is near. I don't feel like, like God is actually working. I, I can't see it. I always point people to Psalm 23, 6. Do you know it? That's one to like write down here. Psalm 23, 6 says this, the only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. Even when it doesn't feel like it, even when I'm sitting in a moment and I can't see it, I cling to that promise that I know that even in this moment, as dark as this is, and Mary and Martha would need to know that at this point, even in this moment, when it doesn't seem like God is responding the way that I'd want him to, I know that only goodness and faithful love pursues me every day of my life. So we might think that something is best and we might have the ideal timeline and we're putting that before God and his perfect ways might just be different than ours. But the first thing we're confronted with here are God's priorities. But they're probably different than what Mary and Martha had. But he wasn't wrong. I wanna pick up in verse 17 now. So now Jesus is headed toward Lazarus's tomb. It says that when he arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. I think Jesus waited because he wanted to come in on the fourth day. One of the commentaries I was reading was talking about how it was a popular Jewish belief to believe that when a person died, their soul would like hover above their body for three days trying to re-enter. But on the fourth day, it's over. As Jesus walks in on the fourth day, this is the darkest moment, the point of no return, the point of greatest pain. And it says in verse 18 that Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, the question that many ask of God, where were you? It's a little bit longer than that, but it's the same. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? One of the new thoughts I had actually in reading this in preparing for today was actually wondering if they knew that Jesus had waited. And I think they did. They knew that they had sent a messenger to Jesus and that messenger had come back days ago and they asked him like, is he coming? And he's like, I don't know. Adds a little bit more to that question. Like, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet, verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So here's what I love about what happens there and what's about to happen is that any schmuck can walk around town telling people, if you believe in me, you'll rise from the dead someday. Right, because nobody lives long enough to see if that's true or not. So if you really wanna prove to somebody like, no, 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 like I really do have the power of, of life and death. Like, how would you prove that? Maybe like raise somebody from the dead? Just give me 18 verses and we're gonna be there. We're gonna see the power of God on display. But like what more could Jesus do to prove that he has power over life and death? What more could he do? Maybe instead of just raising somebody else from the dead, he could raise himself from the dead. I mean, like, how do you even do, like, how, either one of those. But Easter's, Easter's coming. But he's gonna provide a, a timeless testimony and evidence of his display, of just like, like a power, undeniable display of his power. And don't miss the language here. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I give or I cause these things to happen, which would be true, but I am the resurrection and the life, that resurrection power and life are so intertwined with who I am, I am the embodiment of resurrection power and life. You wanna see those things? Resurrection power and life, look at me. Those things are found in relationship with me. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Underline this with your pens here quick. Everyone who lives and believes in me, verse 26, will never die. Will never die. This is the power of God on display through Christ. That those in Christ never die. Death has such a finality to it. Doesn't it feel like that? But you must understand, people. Death doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. Jesus has the final word. And so in my life, as I have died to who I was before, and I have entrusted myself by faith to Christ, I will close my eyes in this life as if fallen asleep. And when I wake up and open them again, I will be in eternity forever with him. Those in Christ never die. And I'm, I'm serious about this. If there's somebody in the room that'll outlive me, please make sure this happens. You know, most tombstones say on them that they've got your name and then they've got like the day that you were born and then the dash and then the day that you die. Here's what I want mine. I want mine to be different than everybody else's. And maybe I'll start a trend here. I wanted to have my birth date, July 26, 1984. It was a big day. I was born. Um, you can have the dash. So that's all the same. But instead of like the ending date, just put eternity. Because that's what's true. By placing our faith in Christ, there's no ending point. I go to sleep, I wake up, 
and spend eternity with Jesus. Those in Christ never die. This resurrection power, it, it gives us an unusual hope in this world. This is what 1 Thessalonians says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. Take note of this. So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope, like the rest of the world who thinks that that's it. That death is a finality. It's, it's the final chapter. It's over. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by word of the Lord, that we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then all who are still alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How do we as Christians engage death when we come face to face with it? We grieve, but not like the rest of the world that doesn't have hope. We grieve with hope. Death stings, but we are not in free fall. When my grandma passes away, I will not be in free fall in my grief. There is a safety net that catches me. For those who don't know Christ, going to those funerals are tremendously painful. But for those who do, we are able to grieve with hope. And so I wanna go back to these verses, 25 and 26 again, and I just wanna personalize them for you. I don't want to be talking about somebody else's faith. I want to ask you this question. When Jesus says to you, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? And I think Martha is a tremendous model of faith at this point. It's Romans 10, 9 that says that if you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we see that on display here in Martha's response when Jesus says, do you believe this, Martha? She goes, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. I hope there's Martha's all over this room this morning. That Jesus is saying that to you, do you believe this? And you say, yes, Lord, I do believe that. I believe you are the Messiah, son of God who came into the world. So verse 20, having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary had gotten up quickly and went out. They followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. And as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The second time that that phrase has been used, Lord, where were you? Do you not know? Do you not care? And when Jesus saw her crying, 
and the Jews who had come with her crying. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. To this point, we've seen the priorities of God. We've seen the power of God. Now we're about to see the personality of God. And honestly, this is my favorite part of the text. My favorite part of this entire scene. When you read that phrase in verse 33, that he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled, that is like the worst translation ever. Like the English just like doesn't do it justice at all. If you go back into the original Greek, and try to understand like, like what's at the, the, the root of that? This word's really only used once here, again in verse 38 and three other times in our New Testament. But it's a unique word of unique passion and anger. Like at the root, it means to snort with anger. Like literally, like what I was reading said, it means to snort with anger, like a horse snorts. I don't know what that looks like. It's got to be pretty bad. But like when you read that, there's like the fact, what you need to see is like, this is like deep, emotional, passionate, outrage, hatred, and anger. As Jesus walks towards the tomb of his friend, there is fury in this moment. And you go, why? What's he so passionate about? I think it's this. And he's just looking at this whole scene and he's just, beside himself, because it just wasn't supposed to be like this. When God the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit worked together and created the world in its original form, it wasn't like this. There wasn't sickness, there wasn't pain, there wasn't death. But when sin came into the world, it broke our world to the core and he's seeing it face to face and it makes him angry. You wanna see Jesus angry at something? This is it, this is the moment. He is furious. And I'll give this to you like as a gift. The next time you go into a funeral, keep this in your back pocket. That Jesus hates funerals more than you do. But now watch what happens next. So verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Verse 34, where have you put him? He asked, Lord, they told him, come and see. And the shortest verse of the Bible, if you wanna memorize one, John eleven thirty-five, 35, and Jesus wept. If you were to ask me at any point of the past five or six years, like, hey, Cody, What is it about God that just like captures like your heart, your mind, like everything about you in just such a compelling way? I'd go, it's stuff like this. Like if I was Jesus and I'm walking towards Lazarus's tomb, I'd probably be like doing like the Conor McGregor walk, you know, like you'd have a little bit of a strut to you. And if anybody that's like crying, I'd just be like, it's fine. I'm gonna raise him from the dead, it'll be great. And then you all know, I got this power. I'm kind of a big deal. Like that would be how it would go. But I absolutely, absolutely love this, guys. In three verses, the span of three verses, you see both the fury of God and the tears of God. Because as this whole scene is unfolding and he's orchestrating every event, he knows how the story ends. He, he's got it all figured out. It doesn't mean that he's like somehow emotionally disengaged or removed or distanced. 
but he enters in. Our God is the type of God that actually enters into the level that he feels human hurt. When you're weeping there next to the casket of your friend, he's there too. And this is why I hate, like sometimes when I'm at a funeral, I can hear people going through the lines like, don't worry, God works out all things good, you know, for the good of those who love him. Like it's all gonna work out. It's like, that's true. But it's just not the example of Christ and how he entered into sad moments. I wanna speak what's true. I also wanna sometimes just shut my mouth and enter in and just weep with friends who are hurting and enter into the reality that we both hate this. I hate death. So when tragedy strikes and these questions start to roll then about, God, where were you? His answer, as we see in this text, is I'm intimately involved in every detail. And then if you ask, well, well, do you not know then, like, how much this hurts? Yeah, I do. Well, do you not care? I care more than you could even comprehend. As a pastor, when I walk with people through hurt, and if you're a person right now going through a tremendous amount of suffering, just hear this from me. Like, I don't know the specific reasons and the whys behind why God is doing what he's doing in your life and around your life. But I do know this. I know that only goodness and faithful love pursues you all the days of your life. And in everything that God is doing, he is laboring for your good. And I know for a fact that right now, the last thing you should do is to push him away or label him as distant or unkind or unloving when I know that isn't true. You need to cling to him right now because he is the only certain foundation. And now verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb and it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. resurrection power on display. Guys, this isn't some like cute story. This is real and it really happened. And three times over the course of this text, you can see it in verse four, verse 15, and here again in verse 42, a so that statement. A so that statement which helps you understand that there's purpose behind everything that's going on here. Jesus has orchestrated this whole scene. 
so that people would see the glory of God in him, so that people would be drawn to him and see the resurrection power that is in him, so that people would believe in him for eternal life. Everything that he is doing here maybe doesn't align with their priorities of like immediate happiness or whatever, but is for a greater purpose that is good for not only Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but for everybody around. What we see here on display is not God's evil nature, but his labors of love. Again, guys, if, if I was God, I would give myself the cushiest life a person has ever had. I wouldn't ever tell me no. I wouldn't ever let me feel pain. I would make life so smooth and comfortable and yet, sadly, at the same time, I will walk through this life clinging to a bunch of things that are passing away and slipping through my fingers, and I would go straight into an eternity of hell. That's what I would design for my life if I was God. But God loves me more than I love myself. And if all of a sudden he allows these tremors to roll through life that would shake me just a bit to help me to realize, whoa, 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 whoa. This world is passing away and everything in it. And it starts to break my white knuckled grips from what I'm holding on to, the things that will never satisfy, that I would actually let go of those things and grab onto what actually does. You can see a labor of love because Jesus's goal isn't to make heaven on earth for us. It's to get us to heaven. That's it. And so Jesus here, what we see in John 11 is at war with our affections, the affections of our heart because he has a greater purpose in mind. Because the reality is, Lazarus came out of that tomb that day, but he was going back in there eventually. And I did some research on this because, you know, I got to go to Google and make sure that everything's validated here. But like recent research has proven what we've known for thousands of years, that 10 out of 10 people still die. That may be a shocker to you. But what we like to do is we like to avoid death. We just like, I'd rather not talk about it. I'll avoid going to funerals. I'll wear anti-aging cream. I'll invest in like cryo chambers and stuff like that. Like wake me up someday when you get it all figured out and we can live for eternity. Like that's what we are trying to do in this world. We want to avoid death. And what I absolutely, I believe that we have to do guys is we have to engage it and talk about it, that we are going to die. As much as I hate funerals, Ecclesiastes 7.2 guides me. This is what Ecclesiastes 7.2 says is, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. It's good actually for us to go to funerals. It's good for us as a society to talk about it and to recognize that death is coming for us all. Everyone dies eventually. The question is what happens next? And what Jesus says is I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so while we spend our lives trying to avoid death and push it away, Jesus approached it and ended it. 
the one who actually had the ability, the power to cancel every funeral. And we don't have to go to any more to prepare a place for us that he will eventually bring us home where there'll be no more grief or crying or pain and death will exist no more. Jesus had the power to do that, to accomplish that and did it on the cross. Praise be to Jesus. Do you have that confidence and hope in your life? Is that what you cling to even in the hard times? Is this how you can engage death, the scariest thing that we see in our world? Jesus said, you'll have a lot of troubles in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world and he's overcome death for us, that those in Christ never die. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much. The one who actually had the ability, the power to cancel funerals, you did it, Lord. We avoided it, you approached it. And so God, we celebrate you as our only hope. We thank you that even the way that you brought hope to us and you brought life to us, that those in Christ never die, you did that by dying for us, paying the ultimate price, greatest sacrifice for us. And Jesus, I pray that this next line is echoed throughout this room by every heart and every person in here. That Jesus, I've placed my faith in you. You are my hope for this life and for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.